looking at um, things to look for specifically in sentences. Uh, last week we looked at two different things. Who can remind us what those were? One and two. Items one and two, what were they? Okay, repetition of words was one of them. What else? Contrast. Very good. All right, so tonight we're going to try and get uh, through uh, four more of these items. And uh, we will look again at Romans 12, uh, 1 and 2, and add to uh, what we have already done. Uh, So first we're going to look at comparisons. I have several uh, examples here that we can look at. Now, when we looked at contrast last week, obviously we were focused on the various differences. As you read a sentence, we're looking for the differences in that sentence. So comparison focuses on similarity. So we're going to look for items, ideas, or individuals that are compared to one another. So let's look at a few examples here. Proverbs twenty-five, twenty-six: Like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. So how is a righteous man who gives way to the wicked like a muddied spring? What does it say? Okay. So what when you get into uh when you get into the calm water and but there's mud underneath you can maybe see see down to the bottom, but once you get in there and move your feet around and stir it up, what happens? It's cloudy, it's muddy, it's, it's gross all of a sudden. Okay, so uh, like a muddied spring or a fountain that's polluted and uh, fountain, we think of something flowing. Um, here, I, I, taking all of this together, I'm thinking of uh, like a savanna marsh. Just nasty, disgusting, stinky. I don't know why anyone would build their house on I don't understand that, but people do it for big dollars around here. Anyway, uh, like that, if you think about that, um, is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. So what's the comparison here? What, what is ultimately, what is the writer of Proverbs getting at about this man and his heart? Okay, it's polluted and muddy, right? So let's expand that a little bit more. Let's uh, talk out that comparison a little bit more. It's polluted, it's muddy, but it says he's a, a righteous man, so what does that imply? Say again? He's fallen. Sure. So <coughs> um, if we, <coughs> excuse me, if we consider this, in terms of, it wouldn't have been these terms as the writer of Proverbs wrote it, but if we consider it in terms of one who's a believer or a non-believer, and the Bible talks about a righteous man, would he have been a believer or a non-believer? A believer, right? Okay, so we can, we can talk about it in terms of a, a believing man who gives way before the wicked. What is it to give way before the wicked? Okay, to sin, but let's be more specific about that. What, what kind of sin? What's that? Okay, that we would, um, 
essentially all the, all the fruit of the Spirit, in essence, would be, would be drained from us in a way. What, what else, though? What, there's something else here. Gives way before the wicked. When he says before the wicked, what are we talking about there? If I stand before you, I'm in front of you, right? So before the wicked, let's, uh, what, do you, what do you think? Mm, maybe. Okay, good. So the implication here is that a believing man who follows the course, follows the path, goes with those who are wicked. Um, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, uh, the one who, uh, who makes company with, uh, with those who are evil. Uh, bad, what is it, uh, in our vernacular, the bad, bad company corrupts good morals, right? Hear that? So that's the picture that the writer of Proverbs is drawing here. He's comparing a righteous man who is following the way of the wicked, the one who's falling into sin, the one who has uh, emptied himself, at least for a season, of the fruit of the Spirit, and instead is walking in the way of those who are evil. He compares him to a muddied spring or a polluted fountain. So the water is clear, the fountain is beautiful, but all of a sudden that mud gets stirred up, that fountain gets tainted. Um, it was beautiful, but now it is, um, it is polluted in some way. So uh, there's one comparison. You'll see comparisons and contrasts all through the book of Proverbs. That's just one example. Let's look at another one in the New Testament, James 3, 3 through 6. <clears throat> the tongue is compared to three different things. So I put that uh, passage on the page for you. So let's um, have someone read that. So I'm not doing all the talking tonight. Um, Bethany, can you read that for us? Okay, great. Thank you. Three things, three comparisons are made here. The tongue is like these three things. What are they? Horse, uh, the bit and the, and the mouth of a horse, right? <coughs> what else? The rudder on a ship. And a fire, right? Okay. You don't experience this a lot out here. We have a little bit. Uh, in the last couple of years, but where I'm from, out west, every summer, uh, the issue of fires becomes a huge issue. Actually, the year I was uh, a senior in high school, a fire came through and burned the entire town that I was in high school, uh, that I went to high school in Los Alamos, New Mexico. The whole, uh, the whole community burned up. Many, many people lost their homes. Um, it all started in a little area that was a controlled burn in the Bandelier National Forest. And it came, it got a little bit windy, and that thing spread, and it burned the whole community. 
Um, that's the picture that James is giving us of what our tongues can do. A few misspoken words, a few hateful words, a few harsh words spoken will spread like a wildfire. They will consume, they will devour, they will burn down, they will take down, um, and in the end, there is nothing but destruction. So that's one of the comparisons he makes. Uh, (coughs) The rudder on a ship, does anyone, we were just talking about this today, anyone ever uh, like to go downtown and just sit and watch the ships come? I think that's the coolest thing. Maybe it's because I'm still a rookie here. (laughs) Ten years in, I still... (laughs) think that's just amazing to see these. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Sure. And you hear, it's really fun at three in the morning when you're staying at the Westin and they wake you up blowing their horn. Yeah. (laughs) What's amazing? Have you ever paid attention? Look at the back of that ship. It's little, there's those ships, they have these things that spin, but there's also a rut that just back and forth steers that thing. It's amazing. This tiny little instrument on the back of the ship is directing where it goes, what direction it goes in. This humongous ship bringing all of our wonderful goods from China. There it is steering itself down the water. So Paul is talking about how small our tongue is in our mouths, and yet how much of our lives are controlled by what it does. Everything that, all the problems we get ourselves into, they begin in our hearts. James tells us in other parts, they begin in our hearts, and our hearts give birth to these words. (coughs) And these words can be very destructive and hurtful. Or, uh, the writer of Proverbs tells us, (coughs) they can give life, can speak life, and, uh, and joy, and peace, and love. So, now, that's one of the comparisons he makes. What's, what's the other one? Someone give us an explanation of uh, the bit in the mouth of a horse. Annalise, what does a bit in the mouth of a horse do? Okay, so if a horse doesn't have a bit in their mouth, how easy is it to direct them where they need to go? Okay, so it's very, very difficult for, uh, for us to, if you're riding a horse, to be able to move it right or left or to stop or go or whatever you want to do without that little piece of metal in the horse's mouth. So what, uh, what's the comparison here in terms of the tongue? Someone else do this one. The bit in the mouth of a horse, we know what it does now. Uh, what, <coughs> what's the comparison with our tongue? Okay, it's small. It's a little small piece. It's a small instrument in our body, right? Good, what else? <coughs> okay, uh, our actions, our, again, same sort of thing. The messes we find ourselves in or the opportunities we have to encourage and love, those all are directed by this little thing in our mouths. Uh, it can be very life-giving. It can be very destructive. So you see, James uses uh, comparison here very effectively, right? All of these are easy, very easy to picture and to see and to kind of orient ourselves to and to figure out exactly what he's referring to. These small little things 
do such amazing big things, sometimes good and sometimes bad. And he even, in uh, his comparison, he shows us some of these things are good and some of them not so good, right? We want to be able to, uh, to direct. We want to be able to guide, but we don't want it to get out of control like a fire. So uh, good comparison there. <coughs> All right, another comparison, Isaiah forty thirty one, where the renewal of strength received from placing one's hope in the Lord is compared to the soaring of eagles. Um, John, can you read that for us? Thank you. So what are we, uh, what kind of instruction or uh, what, are, what are we receiving from here? What is the comparison that's being made? Take just that first line. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. What, what is he saying? And then we'll draw the comparison. Okay, so there's a call here for patience, Right? Wait on the Lord. He says this throughout the scriptures time and time again. If we wait on the Lord, what happens? Okay, good. Our strength will be renewed. All right. So what's now he's going to make the comparison. What is it? Okay. We'll have... Uh, the strength of eagles uh, will soar, essentially. If you ever see an eagle flying through the sky? It's beautiful. They're very gracious. Uh, they're very swift. Um, they're able to, to move quickly, but they can also just almost stop dead in the sky as they're flying. It's an amazing thing. Uh, there's great strength in them. Uh, this next part, they shall run and not be weary. There's a, there's a certain, certain sort of strength there. There's a, a, a particular type of fitness that comes with that. Uh, they shall walk and not faint. You, do you think that uh, to the people Isaiah would have been proclaiming this to, that this idea of walking and not fainting would have had some significance? What, were these people driving around in uh, Mazda 3s? <laughs> no. <laughs> they were walking. What kind of environment were they walking in? Yeah, desert. Every now and then they came across some water, some vegetation, depending on where they were. So this idea of walking and not fainting, running and not growing weary was very significant. So someone put all this together for us. What is, what is Isaiah communicating to us here? Okay, the Lord is our strength. Good. Let's add to that a little bit. Okay. If we are waiting on the Lord, our patience is building us up in the Lord, our strength in the Lord. Why? What is, uh, what is prayer all about? Why do we pray? Does God need us to pray? Does he need to hear from us so he can, he can say, oh, that's right, I forgot about that. What is prayer all about? It's for us, right? It's strengthening us. It's causing us to do this, to be patient and to wait on the Lord. 
And in doing so, in looking to God and continuing to wait on the Lord, that our strength is renewed. He's strengthening us. He's giving us wings to soar that we can run and not grow weary. We can walk and not faint. Yes. (coughs) Absolutely. Sure. The second we begin to try and force something to happen the way we want it to happen without waiting on the Lord, um, we fall flat on our faces, right? Uh, We can't do it. We cannot do it in our own strength. We must wait on the Lord. So that great comparison there is made of this uh, beautiful, majestic eagle flying through the sky, soaring and showing strength against the wind. Um, And uh, it's a beautiful sight. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Good point. Probably the most difficult thing, isn't it? (laughs) To just rest in the Lord, not be anxious. All right. Fourth, lists. basic English lesson lesson here. Anytime you encounter more than two itemized things, you identify them as a list. It is important to stop and explore the list's significance. You see lists all over the Bible. (coughs) The two questions, the two main questions you want to ask every time you come across a list in the Bible is first, is there any specific order to the way things are listed out? And I'll give you an example of one that order matters a great deal. In just a moment. Secondly, we want to ask, are the items grouped in a specific way? So maybe there's two lists back to back, and we'll look at one of those here as well. Uh, so if you see one grouping of lists and another grouping, uh, we want to ask the question, why are they grouped that way? Why did the writer say these things and then those? I'll give you a very obvious example here in Galatians 5. Um, Andrew, can you read that for us? Galatians five nineteen through 23. Great, thank you. All right, are these grouped in any specific way? There's two, very obviously, two groupings of lists, right? So how are they grouped? This is a big, this is a softball. Slow pitch, standing two feet away from you. What's the first group? Okay, bad. <laughs> Works of the flesh. Let's, we'll talk Bible. <laughs> Works of the flesh. We need to talk Baptist. We're in, a, we're, we're in Baptist church. <laughs> yes, those bad things, the works of the flesh, those things that, um, uh, that obviously give evidence of the fact that we are not walking faithfully with the Lord. Um, what's the second list? The fruit of the Spirit, Right. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
if you don't know those, just as a side, if you don't know the fruit of the Spirit, you need to, you need to memorize those. You need to know what those are. Uh, because you need to remind yourself of that regularly. In every situation, am I handling this with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness? All of these things we need to ask ourselves as we encounter one another, as we work it out in our marriages, as we parent our children, as we deal with coworkers, whatever it is. Uh, these are the things that the Bible gives us. In other words, these are the characteristics of one who is in Christ. These will be worked out in their lives. These will be evident as they are encountering circumstances day by day. So we see these two groupings of lists that are given that uh, the Apostle Paul has shown this absolute opposition from, uh, between one and the other, right? The works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit. So you can say the fruit of unbelief, the fruit of belief, these two things. Uh, one is one comes about by our, our own selves, us doing as we please, what we want to do. The other comes about by the Spirit, the work of the Spirit who dwells within us. Pretty simple. Any, any questions or other thoughts about that? All right, I want to give you another example of uh, a list order that matters. Go to Romans chapter 8. Okay, Romans 8, we're going to read verses 29 and 30. <clears throat> For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, throughout the history of the church, this has been called the golden chain of redemption. And I'll explain that. Um, beginning back in verse 29, those whom he foreknew, just for a little lesson here, so you can uh, know how to think about this passage. <coughs> foreknew, another way you can say that is foreloved. Uh, the word knew, K-N-E-W, in the Bible is used in various sorts of ways. So, uh, for example, when the Bible says Abraham knew Sarah, it's not talking about the fact that he knew who she was, right? There's a little something extra going on there, right? Okay? Uh, in the same way, God, those whom God foreloved, God foreknew, if it's just an intellectual knowing, that means everybody. That doesn't fit the context, Right? God doesn't simply just, it doesn't mean he just knows everybody from the very beginning because he created all people. So that's not what's going on here. It's those whom he foreloved. He also predestined, chose, we can say, to be conformed to the image of his son, to become like Christ in order that he might be the first more, <coughs> excuse me, firstborn among many brothers. In other words, so that we might be adopted into the family of God with Christ being uh, the foremost. 
Okay, here's the list. And those whom he predestined, in other words, those whom he chose, he called. So he chose us, and then he called us. What does this, think of Jesus' words in the book of John. What does he say? When he calls his sheep, they hear my voice, right? So we get this picture here. So he chose us, and then he calls us. There's an outward call. That outward call we talk about is the proclaiming of the gospel. We call all men to repentance, but then the inward call. That is the believers hearing, hearing that call and heeding that call, the inward call of uh, the gospel. So those whom he chose, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. He saved the righteousness of Christ was given to them and their sins were placed on Christ. The great exchange happened. So those whom he called, he justified, he gave a right standing before God and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So if you are in Christ, there's eternal security. If you are in Christ, then you will be glorified. You will be made in the fullness of the image of Christ, you will one day be with Christ in heaven and not sin. You will have complete innocence and perfection. We can all give a sigh of relief. <laughs> so does this list in the order that it is, does it matter what the order is? Does the list matter? The order matters a great deal, right? Right? The order in which this goes is very significant. Now, we can't have, these are all links to the chain, right? This is the golden chain. Not a, uh, not a steel chain, a golden chain. Very, uh, very strong and valuable and precious. All of these links have to go in this order. If you're not predestined, <coughs> you won't be called. And if you're not called, you won't be justified. And if you're not justified, you surely will not be glorified. The order matters. It's very, very significant here. Now, some will look at this and say there's something in that order that's missing. What is it? What, comes, what do we understand to come between our justification and our glorification? Right, sanctification. That, that growth in the Christian life, right? That day-by-day day progressive growth to become more and more like Christ as we are walking to become holy, to become holy and righteous followers of Christ. But <coughs> I don't think uh, that was any mistake whatsoever of Paul in writing that. Um, he, he, talks, uh, he talks in other uh, places. Um, uh, John writes in John, Uh, chapter 6, he talks about grace upon grace that is coming to us. In other words, we, uh, as we walk through this life, grace continues as one element of grace seems to be going away, another one is there. And so that's the, that's the, the work of um, sanctification, but all of that comes about as we look to our justification. Our justification is the fuel that gets us going toward glorification. And Paul says we're going from one degree of glory to the next. Okay, so he's not missing sanctification at all. We just have to understand this in light of everything he's written. 
The Christian life is going from one degree of glory to the next because we're encountering grace upon grace upon grace upon grace in the Lord. It's a beautiful passage, and this, uh, this chapter of the book of Romans, and I would say of all the Bible, uh, gives you uh, just incredible, incredible hope and rest and satisfaction in the Lord. I um, encourage you to read that. So, uh, lists matter a great deal. Why they're grouped the way they're grouped and why they're in the order that they're in is very, very significant. Any thoughts or questions on that? We're good? All right. This is probably one that's really going to stand out to you in your reading now. Um, I don't, I don't want to get too far uh, down this. Um, it's right to say that God has varying degrees of love. Um, because when, when the Bible says that God so loved the world, um, I don't think it's right to do some hermeneutical gymnastics to get around the fact that it says the world. <laughs> um, now, there are nuances to that, of course, but in the end, it's not wrong to say that God loves all people, but I don't love my wife in the same way that I love you, in the same way that I love my children, in the same way that I love my parents. It's not wrong to look at God in the same way that he loves his children differently than he loves others. Uh, there's varying degrees of love. This specific love is a, 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 a love for his children, a love for those whom he would um, bring onto himself. But we also have to deal with the reality that in the very next chapter, um, Paul uh, cites the Lord himself saying, Jacob I loved, but Esau I, what does he say? Hated. Um, so we can swing to the other side and uh, do the gymnastics that people like to do and say, well, when he says hate, he doesn't really mean hate. He just means that he wasn't very fond of the things he was doing. Well, recall, this all happened before Jacob and Esau were born, before they could ever do anything at all. Um, <coughs> and it wasn't God just seeing what he was going to do and therefore determining that he wasn't going to like that. Uh, when the Bible says hate, uh, in the Greek that means hate. Um, it's, that's what it is. Um, so we have to deal with that as well. So there is this element of God hates sin, and he, he hates sinners. He hates the fact that he's not being glorified uh, by those who are always walking in a way that is treasonous, is blasphemous, is continuing to um, try and take glory from him. Um, it's not wrong to talk about it in that way. Um, so... As much as we might uh, look at the, um, uh, I, I believe when Jesus talks about, because all the law of God is a reflection of the character of God, when Jesus says, um, don't hate your enemy, but love them, there's an element there, though, of we hate the fact that someone <coughs> is opposed to God, is opposed to us, is continuing to work against all that God has commanded, um, all that we are in Christ. We hate that. And there's nothing, that's not wrong. But at the same time, we're called to love them, to show love to them, uh, to, uh, to do loving things for them. Um, so we're simultaneously being called to 
uh, to hate what is, uh, what is sinful and blasphemous and opposed to God and his glory and simultaneously love. And I think that's a reflection of the character of God in that, in that essence and how we can harmonize those two things. That's like, that was all free. And I'm not going to charge you for that. <laughs> yeah. Any <coughs> questions about that? I don't want to spend too much more time on it, but it's a lot to kind of wrap our minds around. <coughs> All right, let's look at cause and effect. All right, biblical writers state a cause and then the effect of that cause. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Okay, first cause is a soft answer. What is the effect? Okay, wrath is turned away. A harsh word, what does a harsh word result in? Anger, right. Pretty easy, right? Cause and effect. Do this, this will happen. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's two cause and effect statements there. What are they? Okay, the wages of sin is one cause. What's the effect? Death. What's the other cause? Okay, yeah, the free gift of God is what? The effect? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the cause is God has given us a free gift. The effect of that free gift is eternal life. Okay, cause and effect. Very, very simple, but sometimes it's very subtle, so it might go right past us. <coughs> if you see a statement that gives an if-then type statement, that's a good place to look for cause and effect. If then you have been raised with Christ, we can say here, then seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In other words, if you're a Christian, seek godly things. Even more simple, if you say you're a believer, then act like it. <laughs> okay? If you are in Christ, your life will reflect that. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Don't be worldly. Don't go after the things of the world. Cause and effect. Any question about that? It's a very simple one. It stands out often. You'll see it often as you read. Okay, number six, figures of speech. Now, you southern folk are very, very good at figures of speech. Use them all the time. Wish Scott was here tonight. He could, he could fill the rest of the evening with this. Figures of speech are images in which words are used in a sense other than their normal literal sense. Okay? Uh, one of my favorites. I've not heard a lot of people say it, but when I first moved here, I heard it. It was about to rain really heavy, and someone said, it's going to be a frog strangler out there. You ever hear that? Yeah, you have? Yeah, you're pretty country. Uh, <laughs> Rain, <coughs> raining cats and dogs, yeah. These are all figures of speech, right? Dogs, sorry. Raining cats and dogs. <laughs> we see these all throughout the Bible as well. 
uh, some of them more obvious than others. Psalm 119, 105 is a very good example of this. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Okay, so we know, obviously, if uh, I'm walking down uh, my dark hallway to my bedroom at night, I can't take out my Bible and all of a sudden I have a flashlight, right? It doesn't work that way. So we can't take this by the literal sense of a lamp to light this dark trail. But it's a figurative lamp that allows us to see our way through life. Now, what is... What is, uh, what is the figurative language that's being used there? Our way through life. Uh, our feet moving down the path. We're walking down the path. We're going through life. So the use of the word lamp and the use of the word feet and path, these are all figures of speech. They're being used in a way to display to us that the word of God tells us how to walk. How to go through life. How to walk in godliness. (coughs) So the thing we want to do as you come across figurative language, and you will particularly see it in the Psalms and the prophets. It's it's all throughout the Bible. Jesus uses it often in his parables as well. But um, it's most prominent in the Psalms and in the prophets. Um, You need to ask the question, what is the image that the author is trying to convey with this figure of speech? So what picture is being painted? And in that picture, what is, uh, what is the author trying to communicate? So when, uh, uh, when the, the psalmist writes about uh, the singing trees and the clapping waves, uh, we shouldn't have this picture in our minds that... Uh, the trees grow uh, lungs and a mouth and start singing songs. Um, when a tree is singing, what's happening? The wind's blowing and the leaves are rustling, right? What happens when waves are clapping? They grow arms. What are they doing? They're crashing, right? Okay, there's a storm probably, right? Okay, so this is all, these are all figures of speech to paint a picture, to help us to, uh, to visualize better. It's, it's poetic, it's, uh, it's sing-song type language that's being used. It's, uh, it's, it's the sort of thing that we would see in our uh, songs and poetry. Um, another example, Isaiah 40, 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. We've read this already, right? They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. What's the figure of speech here? (coughs) Yeah, they shall mount up with wings like eagles. If we wait on the Lord, does that mean we grow wings and start to fly? No. He's painting a picture here. He's helping us to see, uh, to draw this visual imagery that we can see exactly uh, what he's trying to communicate. They can be images of blessing. They can be images of judgment and disgust. Here's one, Matthew 23, 27, the words of Jesus. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. I don't know about you. I, um, I, have this, I like to go to uh, cemeteries and walk around and read the headstones and everything else. Um, particularly downtown. There's some really cool ones down there. Um, if you ever eat at J. Christopher's uh, for breakfast and go around the corner, there's a really cool cemetery uh, back there. There's a lot of um, significant people uh, buried in there. But 
you walk around and all those tombs have sat out in the elements for years and years and years. Um, and many of them during the Civil War were picked up and moved and uh, used uh, for shelters and everything else by soldiers. Um, those tombs don't look good. And a lot of them, they don't know exactly where they go because they've been moved. Um, so this is the picture that uh, Jesus is drawing. You are like whitewashed tombs. Right, we get this, this picture of these tombs that are, uh, they're, they're supposed to be this thing of beauty, a display of um, giving honor to someone, of marking where they are. Uh, but, and it helps to, to know, we're, you're probably talking more in terms of, what are they called, mausoleums, the ones that are above the, something like that as opposed to a headstone. Um, but something that's beautiful externally maybe fades in time, but inside of it, what's in there? Is it beautiful at all? <laughs> no, it's rotting, it's wretched, it's horrible. And this is the same passage where he, starts, he talks about the outside of the cup you clean, but the inside is dirty. Same sort of thing, figure of speech being used. He's talking, uh, he's talking to those who, they do everything on the outside, they do it all right, they got it all together. They're very re- religious people externally, but inside their hearts are dirty and wicked and foul. <coughs> so we see figure of speech used in two different kinds of ways. Any questions about that? Yes, sir. Um, we read the Bible. Uh, this goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning uh, of going through all of this. We read the Bible like we do other literature. So if I come across poetry, I don't read poetry literally. I read it with the figurative imagery that poetry is meant to convey. So when I read the book of Acts or when I read uh, Exodus, These are historical narratives. I don't read those figuratively at all. I read those with with absolute certainty that there's historical details being laid out here and the history is being drawn. Uh, But that doesn't mean within the midst of that, um, for example, I already mentioned him. I don't think he'd mind. Um, Scott Bass can tell one mean story. And I'll... I'm sure that all, all the facts of that story will be accurate. Everything's going to be correct. But in the midst of that, he's going to throw in some, uh, some southern figures of speech. I guarantee it. So while I take the facts of what he's saying, literally, this happened and it happened in this way, I have to be able to hear those figures of speech and know uh, that <coughs> how he's saying it might include some elements of things that are meant to convey something um, that, uh, that are, are helping the story move along in essence. So it, my, my rebuttal would very simply be that it depends upon the genre of the literature that we're reading. We read poetry as poetry. We read prophecy as prophecy. We read historical narrative as we would read any other history. Um, the one that people get hung up on is um, uh, apocalyptic literature, especially Revelation and some of the parts of Daniel and Ezekiel. Um, 
apocalyptic literature has always, throughout the history of the church, has always been read in the form of uh, poetic-type language. So it's not meant to be taken very uh, to the point of staunch literalism. When you get to that place, you, you come to some really wacky conclusions. Um, so we have to be very careful and discern what is the genre. Sometimes genre switches in books, and you'll go from one to the other, like the book of Job. The first two chapters of Job are historical narrative. But then once you get beyond that, you get into a lot of poetry, uh, and it's, it's called wisdom literature, which uh, is not meant to be uh, taken in, uh, in the same way as we would historical facts. So that would be my answer. All right, we, uh, we're out of time. I, I wanted to, uh, to put all this into Romans 12, 1 and 2 like we did last time, give you guys a chance to use your highlighters, sorry. Um, <coughs> one thing before we break, I wanted to mention this, I forgot to at the beginning. Um, again, more, more free, I'm just giving you free stuff all night. Um, uh, I was thinking back to the book of Luke, first chapter, first four verses as we look at that, and how Luke came to the conclusions he did in his writing. What, uh, let's see who's paying attention. How did, how did Luke uh, come to write the book of Luke and the book of Acts? What did he, uh, what did he rely on to write it? Okay, eyewitness accounts that were spoken, that were written, most likely the Gospel of Mark, as part of that, okay? So, all those things together. The, the thing, uh, I, it was already long, so I didn't add all this in, but um, the thing that we have to recognize as we consider how we have the books in the Bible that we have uh, is what the criteria was for them to get in there. A lot of people will ask about that. Well, why, how do we know that these 66 books are uh, the right ones? If you ever in a conversation with someone who's Roman Catholic who actually knows their Bible, it's rare, but you might, um, they want to add a bunch of other books to the Bible called the Apocrypha. Um, the Na- National Geographic, God bless them, they're so wonderful and helpful to all the world. Um, the Gospel of Tom, oh, we discovered a new gospel. Well, lo and behold, we never knew that existed. Give me a break. Um, how do we deal with that? Why aren't those in the Bible? We have to be able to answer those questions. What were the requirements for a book to be included in the New Testament, specifically? Does anyone know? Two main requirements. Okay. Right. Okay, good. So that's one of the requirements. The person had to be, who wrote it, either an apostle or in direct relationship to one of the apostles. So who was Luke's direct relationship to? Yes, <laughs> all of them probably. Um, most specifically, we, he traveled with Paul. Uh, he was probably closely affiliated with Peter, and if you understand how it's understood we got the book of Mark, you'd understand how Peter works in there. So all of those, So Luke had very close association with the apostles. They could verify all of this. What was the other criteria that was used to determine if books were inspired and to be part of the canon of Scripture? Okay, well, sure. Uh, if, 
if there was any contradiction in it compared to the rest of Scripture, then it was obvious that it couldn't, it couldn't be there. It wasn't part of it. Um, but it, generally, it had to be something that was believed uh, in uh, without, without much uh, conflict. It had to be believed throughout the history of the church. That as the church was formed in the first century, uh, that those in the first century church accepted it as scripture. Now, some of the books of the Bible, we know that they're scripture because it tells us. Other writer, Paul references the writings of Luke. Peter references the writings of Paul. And so it attests to itself, scripture interpreting scripture and telling us this is the scriptures. Old Testament, um, there's only uh, four or five, I think five books in the Old Testament that aren't cited in the New. So we know their scripture. So it's important as we go along, and if I have time this week, I'll um, maybe add more thoughts and email it out or something. But um, important things to know and to think about as we walk through this so we can have a greater grasp on the sufficiency and the uh, reliability of, of the Bibles that we have. Any other thoughts, questions, comments, complaints? Take a number. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again so much for our time tonight. We are so grateful for your grace, for your mercy, for your love, for your compassion. We're grateful, Lord, that you foreknew us. And in your foreknowing us, you predestined us to be conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And as a result, you called us, you justified us, that we would be glorified. Lord, that is a great, comforting reality for believers in Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you help us to rest in that truth, to find so much hope and joy in the fact that we are yours and that we can look to Christ as our older brother, as the one who is the sovereign king of the universe, of all that was, all that is, and all that ever will be. That you are our Abba Father. Lord, thank you that your word attests to these great truths. Thank you, Lord, that we have learned (coughs) that as we rest in you, that you will strengthen us, that you give us hope and restoration and refuge. Thank you for the reminder that when we don't wait on you, when we seek to do things in our own strength, that we will grow weary and we will grow faint. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder of what great tools of grace and love and compassion our tongues can be, and yet the danger that can come from them as well. Lord, I'm so thankful that as we study these ways that we can look at and understand the word all the more that you also have continuously given to us more and more wisdom, more and more understanding of the scriptures as we walk through this. And I pray for all of us, Lord, that we take these things that we know and we use them, that we would be drawn to read more of your word, to devour it. And as we do so, that we are applying these lessons and we're applying these tools that we have to know more of Christ, to know Christ more abundantly, that we would rest, that we'd have joy, that we'd have peace and satisfaction in him. Lord, thank you.
Thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Thank you most of all for the illumining power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us because by your grace and for your glory you have saved us. Thank you. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.